here um, in this pulpit that I may feel physically, but I do feel a weight of responsibilities. I'm feeling in for a man that I deeply admire, both his gifts as a pastor and, and his graces. Your pastor, David Gilbert, has been a blessing in my life already, and it's an honor for me to finally meet you, his dear congregation. Um, without, without anything else to add, let us turn our Bibles to Hosea 11. In your appeal Bibles, it's page 757. We're going to see verses 1 through 11. That's actually where the Hebrew Bible stops. Um, the 12th verse being part of the next chapter. And it makes a lot of sense for it starts dealing with somewhat another issue as the prophecy of Hosea continues. Hosea 11, verses 1 through 11, I am reading from the New King James Version, so if you notice any difference, um, that's why. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved image. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent, and the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, majestic creator of the universe, what a wondrous insight we have into your being we know that you are our father and although you have no passions lord like us unlike us you do reveal yourself in such a manner that it's too wondrous for us to fathom but help us as we try to do so lord for you have given us these words so that we may meditate upon them be built up in your spirit, to your glory, O oh Father. O oh Lord, may the meditation of all our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasant in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, as a father, one of the most challenging things for me to do is to bring the rod of God's discipline upon my children. 
as a sinner, I see at least double layer of difficulty in doing that. The first one is, is the difficulty with my own sin. As a sinner, I am not always fair, both in the occasion or sometimes even in the measure with which discipline is administered. The second difficulty, the second layer of difficulty that I would have is, despite, as pointed out, my unusual size, I am, as they call me, a gentle giant. And I, I'm a very, very emotional person, and, and it's, it's hard for me to see the look in my son's eyes, to see the fear, to know that that's going to inflict pain on him. After all, I love him so much. However, knowing that, that this kind of treatment is analogous to the treatment that, to the way that the Lord deals with us as his children, encourages me to press on in faithful obedience in this calling that I have as a father. And this is an analogy that fits in into all areas of life. We know that there is a fruit of righteousness at the end of obedience if the Lord is so pleased to produce it by His Holy Spirit. As the Spirit Himself is the one who blesses the Lord's appointed means for us and others around us to, to grow in grace. And what this text is doing for us, what Hosea 11 is doing for all of us this morning, is addressing us as God's own children. Reminding you that your heavenly Father deals with you as He deals with His own children. And as a perfect Father, He will not withhold discipline from you, but He will do whatever it takes to take the foolishness away from your hearts and then produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, God disciplines His children to restore them. To make them like His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He does so by sending His Holy Spirit to make His dwelling within them, thus guaranteeing success in His discipline. Therefore, my dear congregation, as you listen to God's voice in this text of Scripture, how are you going to respond? Are you going to remain stubborn to your Heavenly Father? And perhaps for some of you, and I take myself as an example of that, because I sit almost 20 years in church pews without being actually a child of God, perhaps for some of you an even more fundamental question needs to be answered. Are you actually a child of God? Do you have God as your own Father? And if you think so, on what basis do you affirm such a thing? Perhaps you believe in the universal fatherhood of God. I don't know all of you. You believe that, as people say, everyone is God's children. And go to the same place after they die, regardless of the circumstances of their life. Does that sound fair? I'm sure that for most of you, the answer is a resounding no. For the God of the universe who created everything, yourself included, has placed a thing in every human being called conscience. And on that basis, we all know that it's not fair for everyone to have the same fate, regardless of how he lives his life or not. We need to pay for our wrongdoings, or at least someone has to pay in our behalf. Do you want to know on what basis someone may be truly and fully considered a child of God? Keep listening for this text. It's for you too. This text is also for all of you who know to be one of God's children. It will teach you more about your Heavenly Father. 
what He has accomplished for you, how He deals with you on a daily basis. And we will also challenge you to respond rightly to His own person. Let me summarize what this text teaches us this morning in a sentence. God is a loving Father who graciously disciplines His children to restore them in the end. God is a loving Father who graciously disciplines His children in order to restore them in the end. And that's what we see in our three points here. Very straightforward coming from that very sentence. God's fatherly love, verses 1 through 4. Gracious discipline, verses 5 through 9. And final restoration, verses 10 and 11. Let us jump into our text and see God's fatherly love displayed in verses 1 through 4. And here, first what we see is God's fatherly love declared in verse 1. When Israel was a child, let me pause here and explain a little bit about this word child. It's the same word that Solomon applied to himself as he began his reign. It's the same word that oftentimes in the Old Testament is, uh, is translated as youth. And what this word conveys mainly is the idea of someone who is entirely dependent upon someone else. And this is in fact what Israel was. They depended upon God for protection during the day as they were going away from the Egypt, from Egypt. He protected them from the heat of the day and also from the cool of the night. And even every meal they would receive as a children would, as youth would, from the hands of their heavenly father. And then our text continues, I loved him. And this may prompt a question in your mind, or at least should prompt that question. Why would God love Israel? And as, as one ponders upon this question, uh, you can rest assured that the answer is not to be found in Israel, but in God Himself. Remember the words in Deuteronomy 7 when the Lord said, It was not because you were the mightiest of the nations. It was not because you were the most numerous among the nations, the strongest. In fact, you were the fewer among the nations. But the Lord has, in the same context of Deuteronomy 7, the Lord has decided and has promised to their forefathers to be a God to them and they would be His people. The answer, dear congregation, is to be found in God's unshakable faithfulness and unrelenting resolution to bring His love and His undeserving people with Him to the end. We have here God's fatherly love declared in verse 1. Also in verse 1, we have God's fatherly love demonstrated. You see, out of Egypt I called my son. He did not only declare, but as if it were, he walked the walk, not only talked the talk. He showed them that he loved them by delivering them from the bond of slavery. When he heard their cry, as we read in Exodus 3, the Lord came to the rescue and saved them with a mighty hand, as we read. Thus he commanded Pharaoh, saying, Let my people go, my firstborn son, so that they may worship me. And here, even in the Old Testament, we see that the Bible already hints to what Paul will make explicit in, in passages such as Romans 9, for instance, that God's electing love leads into adoption of sons. 
I want you to grasp and even be amazed, as I'm sure you are constantly exposed, even in the reading of Scripture here, as, as Elder Fowler just did, that the Bible is not made up of two separate books that are glued together in an artificial manner. Sometimes people tend to consider the Old Testament as a period of law, requirements, no grace at all, but this couldn't be farther from the truth. Just as in the New Testament here, the indicatives of our salvation or the fact that you are saved precedes the imperatives you must obey. See, even in the Exodus itself, we have in the, in the preface of the Ten Commandments, you have, because I am your God who has saved you, now here are my commandments. And then you have the, the, the very illustrative case of the letter of the Ephesians. You have three whole chapters only with indicatives. The realities of the gospel followed by four, three chapters describing the imperatives of the gospel. And do you know why I'm stressing this and why this is important for you to grasp? This is important for you because you need to know that God's love is the cause and not the consequence of your redemption. In other words, God does not love you because you obey Him or because whatever thing you may think you do. But He saved you and you are what you are by His grace. His grace stands at the foundation of everything that you may claim to possess. And that gives you comfort. Remember, for the Father loved the world so much that the consequence is that He sent His Son. It does not depend on you. God showed His love for us that while we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Therefore, dear congregation, the Father's love undergirds all His action throughout the history of the church and the economy of your salvation. Your redemption is not contingent, dependent upon your own efforts, successes, but upon God's everlasting resolution to save sinners to the uttermost. And what a comforting and reassuring truth to remember, isn't it? God's fatherly love, declared and demonstrated, but now, sadly so, despised by His own children. Verse 2, as they called them, so they went from them. In other words, as the prophets, like Hosea, called the people of Israel to God, they went away from God. They were urging them, pleading them, as even prosecutors in the case of Micah most explicitly to come back to the Lord, to plead with Him on the basis of His covenantal promises. But the more they would encourage them to come back, they would turn away from the Lord. Instead of turning back, they would turn away. And as they got farther and farther from God, even as Adam and Eve were expelled from the very presence of God, they started to do terrible things one thing that Hosea will highlight above all else is idolatry. And Hosea will use the image of a harlot. It's the very famous image that Hosea will use to describe the people of God. Because they had betrayed, they had behaved as one who betrays the most intimate of all covenantal partnerships, that of a marriage. 
that Paul will use to describe even the relationship of the church with Christ. Israel was behaving like that. Instead of being a light to the nations, as they were called to be, as it's all, the, all throughout the Pentateuch, they were now as dark or even darker as the nations around them. And then we have God's fatherly love declared, demonstrated, despised, and now described by means of illustration. Verses 3 and 4. And what we see here is the imagery of a household. We see first the Lord describing himself as a father, taking his child by her arms, supporting her gently, sweetly, and lovingly teaching her to walk. And this, in fact, describes, as I've just said in the beginning, the way that God dealt with Israel in the wilderness. Taking them from Egypt, teaching them to walk by faith and not by sight in the wilderness. And just as a child is, Israel would be entirely oblivious to the obvious reality that God was their healer. God was the one responsible to keep them alive, feeding, protecting, providing them. And then in verse 4, we have the imagery here switching to that of a, a farmer that is so kind that would treat his animal with unprecedented dignity. And this is hinted with the expression bonds of love here in verse 4 that literally means human cords to emphasize a certain unprecedented, as I said, level of dignity that that animal was being treated with. A farmer who would not unnecessarily burden his animal, taking the yoke off of him, bending down to feed him, and without getting bogged down with the details here of this image, let you, may you grasp the overarching image and picture of gentleness, graciousness, and tenderness that the prophet is portraying for us here, showing the way that the Lord deals with you, dear child of God. Dear brothers and sisters, perhaps you have heard or even explained the biblical message of redemption, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. Perhaps you have done more so than me. But the real question for you is how have this glorious truth affected you? As you hear them. Do you hear God pleading with your own soul through the faithful preaching of the word? Do you, do you realize that right now God is calling you to turn to him by the preaching of the word? Are you turning away from him instead of turning to him? Maybe right now you are grumpy about the providential arrangements that the Lord placed in your life. Turn back from these ways. Turn to Him. And maybe you are not doing something as scandalous, as scandalous as sacrificing to a carved image. Still, you desire money, professional success, sexual pleasures. Or even admiration from those around you. Perhaps even for the excellent service that you provide for this very church. And you want people to notice and admire and applaud you from that. 
and you want these things more than you want the Lord Himself. Those things will consume you in a way that you will never remember how to cultivate a real, meaningful, sincere, and intimate relationship with the Father who has loved you with unquenching love. These are your idols. Turn away from them to the Lord. Destroy them. And do so by thinking on the privilege that you have in your Heavenly Father. Think about the privileges of adoption. Don't just recite them, but meditate upon them. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 34 expresses in such a beautiful and summarized fashion what adoption is, an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have all the privileges of God's children. A new status. We are God's children. What a privilege. But at the same time, what a great responsibility that comes with it. As it is written in your bulletins and, and, and the elder, your elder just told, uh, my father has a school in Brazil. It's like a middle and high school. And I studied there. Can you imagine the pressure? Everyone would be quick to remind me, man, your dad, you know, he's, he's the only school you, you need to perform. You need to show that you behave well, that you have good grades and professors. All my uncles and aunts work at the school. That was a great responsibility and pressure. Let me ask you, your father is the owner of the entire cosmos. What is your responsibility? To live as the sons of the living God. My teenage conundrum pale in comparison with the responsibility that we all have. Because we have a heavenly father that as the word itself says, so that people may see our good works and what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. Furthermore, as children of God, you can now pray differently. You don't approach God as a distance, an impersonable being. But you approach Him as a Father who again, as our catechism teaches us, is willing able and ready to help us as we approach him. The Israelites did not meditate upon these privileges and they kept on rebelling. Therefore, a perfect father cannot just stand and watch his children passively stray. He will act in the hopes of restoration. He will act decisively, incisively, Imprecisely. Which brings us to our second point. God's gracious discipline. Verses 5 through 9. And this section could. And even on textual. Strict textual grounds. It should be divided into two, two portions. 5 through 7. And then 8 and 9. Standing alone. However. I organize them as one point. Because I think. That the contrast. Between these two portions. Convey the main message that Hosea wants us to grasp. We have, therefore, in verses 5 through 7, the Lord announced what was the deserved verdict upon Israel. And an enlightening background for that portion would be Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, as we see there the law describing the penalty that a father would inflict upon a rebellious children, child. And the penalty was, was death. 
by being stoned by the man of the tribe. And the picture we have in these verses is very similar to that. It is that kind of death penalty at a national level. But then in verses 8 and 9, we have God pitying his son and relenting from applying the deserved penalty. Then I called it gracious discipline. The contrast between these two sessions. Verse 5 then, he shall not return to Egypt, but Assyria shall be his king. And in this context, what was happening at the time was that King Hosea, not the prophet Hosea, was trying to establish an alliance with Egypt in order to avoid the imminent threat of Assyria. In other words, contrary to their own Psalter that they used in worship so much, they were now trusting horses and chariots and not in the Lord of their salvation. Then verse 6 we have here their doom announced, annihilation, entire destruction, humiliation by their enemies. And the reason for that is both in the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 6. They refused to repent in first place. And second, they insisted in trusting in their own counsels or devices. And then in verse 7, we have the conclusion of this section. God restating the spiritual bent of his children, Israel. They were bent on turning away from him. And so are we, aren't we? Therefore, the Puritan Matthew Henry, uh, commenting his, his passage, he calls our attention to repent not only of our sins, but even of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness that is the byproduct of us loving something or even ourselves most prominently beyond our, what we lo the love we have from the Lord for the Lord Himself. And thus we have here in verses 5 through 7, God addressing His people as a judge, uttering their deserved penalty and is still as a judge has the hammer on his hand and he's ready to pronounce the verdict he just lets the hammer go off the sudden and puts his hand on his face and that judge is revealed to be a loving father now he changes the language even it was he now uses direct address he uses second person pronouns here you 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 in a very personal way let us read these words verses 8 and 9 how can i give you up ephraim how can i hand you over israel how can i make you like adma and zeboim my heart churns within me my sympathy is stirred I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come down with terror. Dear congregation, if, if language such as this was not inspired, I wouldn't dare to use it. And even being here, my lips tremble. As I, as I read these words coming from the mouth of the Lord himself, the thought of the mighty warrior, the everlasting creator of heaven and earth, being described as a sorrowful father whose mercies surpass, alone surpass the righteousness and appropriateness of the deserved punishment that you deserve because of your sins. 
If this does not move you, brothers, I do not know what would. Your God is a heavenly and perfect Father who loves you so much that as He contemplates the thought of what your sins deserve, He would have, as the Word says, His heart churning within Himself, recoiling. However, I should warn you that the Lord does not experience the kind of internal conflict as we imperfect beings do. He is perfect and resolute. He decides the end of the things from the beginning. He has decreed all things. So what we have here is not a description of God reacting to our rebellion. He knew it. God never reacts. He's pure action. He decrees all things, but He's here as our confession says, condescending to our level so that we may understand the amount of love that He has for us. I don't want you to be caught in the trap that some people accuse Reformed theology of portraying God as an impersonal, almost robotic being. This does not make Him impersonal, less loving. On the contrary. Because if he was caught by surprise, as sometimes we are in our mutual relationships, oh, if I only knew that that person would be such a headache, I wouldn't have made that contract or whatever. He knew what he was signing for when he created us and still decided to love us. Do you think that this would make him less loving? No. On the contrary, that would make him more and more loving. He will not deal with us as he did with Madma and Zeboim. And if you don't remember what cities are there, are those, you are only strengthening the points of the prophet because what he wants you to remember and to tell you is that you will not be placed in the sea of the Lord's forgetfulness. Those are cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're mentioned in Deuteronomy 29, 23. And nobody remembers them. So that's what the Lord is doing. I will not forget you. I will never forsake you. Ever. And why can we rest assured of that? Verse 9. For I am God and not men. We have here a declaration of God's immutability. His faithfulness in display. It is because he has sworn to their forefathers that he's telling his people, I will not come down in terror. For once God set his love upon a, upon a people in eternity past, he will bring that bond into fruition in the present and seal this very people with his spirit. Ephesians 1. Therefore, the bond that unites us with the Father is unbreakable for the spirit is its seal and for that bond to be broken the spirit would have to cease being God this will never ever happen back to our text the holy one in your midst this is a complete description of God he's both transcendent beyond us and imminent with us and this was demonstrated in so many ways in the old testament the tabernacle the temple, and then culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God with us. And then we have verse 9, the end, the last line, and I will not come down in terror. How come? We have just heard that the Lord is righteous 
and just. And these people deserve destruction. We know that the wages of sin is death. But remember also what the Lord said in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And the context of that passage allows me to summarize what he just said in a Three words, God forgives sinners. But still, we also know that He's just and He will destroy the wicked. Psalm 145 verse 20. How can He spare such a sinful, rebellious, idolatrous people that were deserving to be stoned to death? How can, he's break, how can God break His own statutes and commands? He doesn't. And the answer for that is the very first verse of our passage. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew 2.15 will apply that very phrase in prophecy to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who, come, who came to take the place of, of God's people. And even the context of Matthew gospel, Matthew's gospel makes it clear that Jesus was somewhat reenacting the history of Israel in order to take their place. Let me walk you quickly through this. As Israel was called out of Egypt, so was Jesus, Matthew 2. As Israel passed through the waters of the sea, so was Jesus in his baptism, Matthew 3. As the people were tested in the wilderness and failed, so was Jesus, but succeeded, Matthew 4. As Israel sought their own counsels and devices, Christ's food and drink was to do his father's will, Matthew 26. As Israel had just been pronounced guilty in our passage, Jesus was pronounced innocent, even through the lips of a wicked man, Matthew 27. And at the end of his life, he cried out in a loud voice as a son who was being punished for the sins against his father. And he cried, as Israel never had to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What about us? One may ask, thinking that this proved that Jesus took the place of Israel, but what about us? The answer is included in the very book of Hosea. In chapter 1, verse 8, God pronounced an indictment upon Israel saying, You are not my people anymore. And then Paul developing the book of Romans, the thought of God's promises to Israel and how those were applied even in the fullness of the, the Gentiles. He was explaining God's wisdom in saving sinners there in Romans 9, 26. Applying this to the Gentiles, Paul says, You who are not my people, about this shall be read, These are the sons of the living God. So Israel, and, and, and even Peter understood the prophecy to, to mean the same thing. See, 1 Peter 2.10, You Gentiles who, were, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. So we see that Israel functioned like a magnet that is thrown into the nations. And when the Lord brings them back, He brings back many elects from all the tribes, 
tongues and nations. And what a privilege we have because we get to read the outwork of that very promise in the book of Acts. See if that's not the agenda in the beginning of the book, Acts 1.8. Beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. Dear brothers and sisters, let me warn you in the fashion of the exhortation of Hebrews 2. If these people deserve such a penalty for rejecting the message and the light that they had in the past, how much more are we deserving God's punishment if we reject such light that we have with the full revelation of Christ? A full-blown gospel. You have more knowledge, more covenantal privileges. The Spirit in a fuller measure than the saints of the Old Testament had. Therefore, you have more responsibility. Turn to the Lord in repentance. Apprehend the mercy of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Die unto sin and live unto righteousness. If you reject this last message, preach by the Son, bleeding on a cross, resurrected and raised unto the right hand of God the Father Almighty, there is no other chance for you. The next event in history is the return of this very Son who took the place of those who were not God's people but are now sons of the living God. And as He, Jesus, makes us into sons of the living God, He gives us the likeness of this new family. And through the power of the Spirit that He promised He would send, we are transformed from glory to glory into His likeness, into the likeness of the Son, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. In Him we have the law written in our hearts, that is, as it was promised in Jeremiah 31. Our hearts are circumcised, Deuteronomy 30. And our hearts have been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, through thus, through the Spirit, as Matthew Henry said, God qualifies His people for the good that He has in store for them. And praise the Lord that we know that the people that received this promise did not have the amount of revelation that we now have in our hands in, the book, in this book that sits in your lap right now. Our restoration is accomplished in the finished work of the Lord in the cross. It is there whence our regeneration, justification, sanctification, and finally our glorification come. On the cross, what Christ purchased for us, beyond even our salvation, was the gift of the Spirit whereby we would be fully restored and maintained within God's family. And this brings us to our last and briefest point, God's final restoration. Verses 10 and 11. They shall walk after the Lord, and we will, He will roar like a lion when He's roared. Then His sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a doe from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Do you notice the reversal that we have here? The restoration was accomplished. They now walk towards the Lord. They're not anymore walking away from the Lord, but towards Him. They now desire fellowship with their Father. And how could they not desire 
this fellowship with the Father. It is the shared experience of all of those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling their hearts to have the scales removed from their eyes. Now they are attracted to the irresistible grace of the Father that is displayed by the Son's work and brought home by the Spirit that, has, as I just said, indwells them. And now they, through Him, cry, Abba. In other words, Father. And then we see in verse 11, the last sentence there, and I will let them dwell in their houses. A picture of complete and full restoration from the imminent exile that they're about to experience. And I regret this. This was not meant to convey the idea of physical restoration. We all know that the nation of Israel never regained its previous glory. But this is a complete and final, and there I say, eschatological restoration. Remember the promise of the Son while He lived among us, the true Israel, even Jesus Christ, John 14, I am going to the Father, and I will prepare a place, a house for you. Then we see here God's final restoration accomplished, and now illustrated in a beautiful picture, a picture of a roaring lion. It is significant to know that even here in the book of Hosea and in other minor prophets like Amos, the symbol of the lion is, is often used to describe judgment. But here, the roaring of the lion will scare away all the enemies, but not the cubs. They will come even trembling from the west, but they will come. As I do with my son, he knows, I have a magical word with my son. When I say now, he knows that he must come. Trembling, crawling, but he comes. And I deal with that. In the same way when the gospel is preached, it is like the sound of the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. He's roaring. He's not like a weak God asking permission to enter someone's houses. He's like a lion that through the preached word grabs his cubs by their necks and brings them home. Notice that they will come from the West, the Gentile world, from Egypt, from Assyria, among the enemies. In other words, they are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the, His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all our sins. The New Testament fits so well with this. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Dear congregation, we are not yet in the heavenly Jerusalem, we are living in a fallen world as fallen people. And even the saints of the Lord still experience the power and the presence of sin. See Romans 7 to see Paul's own testimony regarding that. Therefore, it is possible that you are being chastised by God as your father at this very moment in your life. There is no way that I, as a finite sinner, can pinpoint the dots and connect the dots of divine providence and say, because of this sin that you committed, you're experiencing this and this. I cannot do this. I don't even know my own heart that much. 
However, having seen in renewed colors through the eyes of faith, what a great father we have, let me reassure you of something that I do know. It does not matter what is going on in your life right now. It was brought unto you by a perfect father whose eternal will is the good of your soul and who prioritizes your growth rather than your comfort. If I could only guarantee that every discipline that I administered upon my own children would bring the fruit of righteousness that I so desire that they may manifest, I can't. God can. So trust in Him. Rejoice in having Him as your Father, but He's not yet your Father. If you are not assured of that, come to Him now. If He's not yet your God, but you hear His voice through this feeble sermon, come trembling, draggling, slumbling. He will not neglect and reject a truly repentant heart. Psalm 51 assures us of that. And for you, dear cubs of the lion. Repent from your sins once again. Come to Him. Let Him heal you as He has just stooped down to feed you by His Word. Let me finish with a very brief but wonderful quote from the classic by J.I. Packer. Knowing God, he defines a Christian in the most fitting way for us this morning. What is a Christian? Says Packer. A Christian is one who has God as Father. That's it. A Christian is one who has God as Father. And may I say, what a perfect Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and perfect, majestic, powerful, just, and most merciful Creator of all, Redeemer of a peculiar people, not peculiar because they are special in some way or form, as our own lives and existence point to that fact. Give us humility, Lord, to recognize that we are among the weakest things of the world, whom you have chosen in order that the power be all yours and the glory be made evident to be yours. Enable us, Lord, to understand that you are a heavenly and loving Father that deals with us as your children. Oh Lord, how much more do we need to grasp the fact that everything that is brought upon us is brought by your hand. Indeed, Lord, discipline in the moment of, it, of its administration is not pleasant, but it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And we want that, Lord. And if we do not want, let us confess our sinfulness. And please cause us to want to manifest your righteousness to a wicked and crooked generation. Protect us, Lord, from self-righteousness. Protect our families from selfishness. Protect our hearts from idolatry. Help us, Lord, to remember your fatherly love so that we may have godliness with contentment as you graciously disciplines us. And as we are being restored from glory to glory, even at this very moment when you are present with us, mediating as our high priest the blessings of the Father through the Spirit that lives in us, O Jesus. May we, Lord, eagerly anticipate the final restoration. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness 
For to those is promised that they shall be filled. O Lord, may we be pure and blameless of heart, and we will see you in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.